This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, October 8th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. The golden and silver ages of passenger rail are long gone, and yet governments continue to push for more rail, be it heavy or light. In his new book, Randall O'Toole argues that despite his love for them, trains just don't make sense for the overwhelming majority of modern travelers. The book is Romance of the Rails, Why the Passenger Trains We Love Are Not the Transportation We Need. We spoke last week. When I was five years old, uh, I took the Great Northern Western Star from Grand Forks, North Dakota to Portland, Oregon, and I've been obsessively in love with trains ever since. Uh, In 1989, I moved from Eugene, Oregon to Portland, Oregon to work on the Spokane, Portland, and Seattle 700, which is the third most powerful operating steam locomotive in the world. We got it operating in 1989, and I eventually purchased five railroad passenger cars that we were going to restore and operate with this locomotive. Unfortunately, we lost the lease uh, on the land that we were storing the passenger cars on, and so we had to sell them. But uh, it was fun owning them and feeling like I was a private rail car owner for a while. One of them was a dome car was particularly beautiful, and we sold it to some people who have restored it for operation with another steam locomotive down in California. The point is, I just love passenger trains. The very first job I ever had was uh, restoring an old streetcar, and I have traveled hundreds of thousands of miles on passenger trains all over Europe, Asia, and the United States and, and Canada. So it's a hard decision, but it's hard for me to support subsidies to passenger trains when they don't really work very well. They cost taxpayers a lot of money. They end up going from the poor to the rich, and they are not carrying that many people. So that was why I wrote Romance on the Rails, to try to reconcile my my love for passenger trains with my opposition to subsidies. What do you consider to be, uh, I think you refer to it as the Silver Age? of passenger rail? When was that? That's right. Well, the, the golden age of passenger rail was about from 19, 1895 to 1925 or so. And in that time, uh, there were almost every city in America that had 15,000 people or more had a streetcar line in it. Uh, and there were more than 10,000 passenger trains, intercity passenger trains a day going across the country. You could get just about anywhere by train, and when you got off an intercity train, you could get on a local train to go somewhere. Uh, and that um, was an interesting time. If you, if you had the money, and trains were really expensive, so only the real wealthy people could really do it, you could go anywhere by train and uh, be almost as mobile as people are today by car. The thing was, it was so expensive that most people didn't have that mobility. When cars became available, uh, cheap cars, In the 19-teens and 20s, auto ownership grew and uh, both rail transit and intercity rail ridership declined rapidly uh, until even before the Depression began, it was much, much lower than it had been in 1920. And then the Depression just brought it down even more. To revive train ridership, um, a man named Ralph Budd, who was president of the Burlington Railroad at the time, uh, went to the Chicago uh, Century of Progress Fair, which is a Chicago centennial of the city of Chicago in 1933. And he saw a, a streamlined train that had been developed by uh, Pullman. 
He saw an air-conditioned train that had been developed by the Baltimore and Ohio. He saw a diesel engine that had been developed by General Motors. And he saw uh, a stainless steel train that had been developed by a company called the Bud Company, uh, curiously the same last name as him. Uh, Edward Bud was an engineer. So <clears throat> he put all these things together and he said, let's have a diesel-powered, streamlined, stainless steel train and revive train service. And it worked. It was a high-speed train, uh, went up to 110 miles an hour, and he had trains running from uh, Chicago to Minneapolis, Chicago to Denver, uh, Denver to, to Dallas, uh, and all over the Midwest, these streamlined, stainless steel, brightly, you know, highly reflective uh, zephyrs, they were called. And... That was the Silver Age. I call it the Silver Age both because it came after the Golden Age, but also because these trains, many of these trains were silver colored from about 1934 to about 1960. So something, uh, the Silver Age was an age of streamlined trains. Uh, soon they had dome cars, which had uh, optimal viewing conditions sitting in a dome above the regular car. They had wonderful lounge cars and dining cars and uh the overnight trains had comfortable sleeping cars, and the coaches were comfortable too for overnight accommodations. And so uh, there was a revival of train service thanks to these streamlined trains, but could, they could not withstand the, the competition from the jets that appeared in the 1950s and the uh, air, automobile travel on improved highways in the 1950s. And so they faded out. By 1958, it was pretty clear to everyone in the industry that the train passenger trains were not going to last much longer. So you uh, have a chart in your book, Romance of the Rails, uh, detailing the decline in passenger rail. So why? So is is this is this dovetail with your story here that uh, by the time the 50s came along, pretty much everybody had even even the wealthy had better options for high speed travel. That's right. You know, the wealthy would take uh, uh, propeller planes uh, and lower income people would drive. Uh, you know, when you wanted, had a two-week vacation, you drove across the country instead of took the train across the country. And uh, when jet air travel came in, that reduced the cost so that more people started flying. And uh, for really long distances, even if you were going 500 miles, it was just cheaper and easier to drive if you had a family of four or five people than it was to pay a separate rail fare for each person in the family. So uh, passenger train ridership grew from about 1935 to 1945, 46, 47, and then after wartime uh, uh, rationing, gas rationing and things like that stopped, uh, passenger train, both intercity and urban rail ridership just plummeted. It just... Uh, like the bottom fell out of the market, you know, the ridership d just went down 80, 90 percent in many cases. And so railroads could only respond by either trying to reduce their costs or just cut the trains entirely. And the ones that tried to reduce their costs without cutting the trains got severely criticized by the people who love trains because they thought they were trying to turn people away by having lower cost train services. But the reality was they were just trying to cover their costs by having lower costs since they couldn't generate any more riders. Uh, in terms of commuter rail, I know you and I have discussed this probably several years ago, but the 
uh, subtext of the film Who Framed Roger Rabbit uh, is the disappearance of the streetcar, and it's called The Streetcar Conspiracy. Um, so can you, can you walk me through some of the, the broad strokes of that, of the conspiracy as it was presented? Because of course, streetcars did disappear. People did start driving a lot more. Uh, but what, uh, what is the, what is the claim by the people who subscribe to this view? Well, let me tell you what really happened. Uh, and then I'll tell you about the conspiracy because chronologically, what really happened, happened years before the conspiracy supposedly took place, uh, in, uh, 1923, some brothers in California named Fagel, F-A-G-E-O-L, uh, built the first bus that was built from the ground up. Be before that, buses had been, they'd taken trucks and then put a bus body on the truck, which meant you had to step several steps up to get into the bus. But these, the Fagel safety coaches, they were called, uh, you didn't have to step very high to get on the bus, and so with the lower center of gravity, they were much safer. And these early buses were cheaper to buy than a streetcar, and you could operate them over streets without spending a lot of money building rails. But they were still more expensive to operate than a streetcar because they had a big engine, and the engine stuck out in front of the driver and under a big hood, and so there was only room in the bus compartment for about 21 seats. A streetcar typically had uh, more than 60 seats. Streetcar had two operators, uh, uh, the driver and the conductor, the bus typically only had one operator, but since a streetcar had more than twice as many seats, it was cheaper to operate per seat mile than a bus. So what the transit agent, transit companies did is they bought buses for new service because it was cheaper to buy them than it was to build new streetcar lines, but they didn't tear out their streetcar lines. They kept their existing streetcar lines and kept running them because they were cheaper to operate than the buses. In 1927, the Fagel brothers developed a new bus. And instead of having the engine sticking out in front of the bus on, under a hood, they hid the engine over the rear wheels of the bus, the rear axles of the bus. And that meant the whole length of the bus could be used for passengers. So they put 40 seats on a bus and room for another 20 people standing. Uh, you could fit as many people in a, in a bus, almost as many people as in a streetcar. And with only one driver, uh, the buses cost a lot less to operate. So 1927 was the turning point for the streetcar uh, operations industry. Uh, basically, they hadn't built any streetcars in the previous decade, but uh, now it was just cheaper to tear out the streetcars and replace them with buses. So over the next 10 years, uh, about 400 different streetcar companies tore out all their streetcars and replaced them with buses. Well, General Motors made buses, and they competed with uh, the Fagel brothers. And they said, we want these streetcar companies to buy our buses. One, they replaced our streetcars with buses. So they invested in a holding company that owned a, a couple of dozen streetcar companies. And they said to the company, we'll, we'll give you some money to buy other streetcar companies on the condition that when you convert your streetcars to buses, uh, you'll buy buses from us. But they didn't tell them they had to convert the streetcars to buses. Uh, they just said, when you buy buses, you buy them from us. And so they did. And for about 15 years, General Motors had an investment in this company. And then the 
uh, antitrust division of the Justice Department said this is a vertical integration that's uh, an antitrust violation, and they asked, they ordered General Motors to sell its interest in the company. So they did. When they sold the interest in the company, uh, they still owned quite a few streetcar lines because the company was only converting streetcars to buses when it was economically appropriate to do so. And General Motors wasn't ordering them to do it any sooner than they would have done it otherwise. They just told them to buy General Motors buses when they bought them. So uh, General Motors uh, sold their interest in the company. And within a couple more decades, all but about eight American cities had converted all their streetcar and other rail transit lines to buses. So then uh, somebody, uh, a Senate staffer, wrote a report in the United States Senate saying that General Motors had engaged in a conspiracy to destroy the streetcar industry and replace them with buses because buses were more less desirable than streetcars. And by destroying the streetcar industry and replacing them with buses, they would force people to stop riding transit at all and, and buy General Motors cars. Well, the whole premise was wrong in, in so many ways. First of all, they weren't engaging in a conspiracy to destroy the streetcar industry. But second of all, buses were considered far more desirable by transit riders than streetcars because they were new and the streetcars were old and they were more comfortable and they tended to be air-conditioned and the streetcars weren't. And so the, the buses had a lot of advantages over the streetcars. Plus, they could go anywhere that you wanted to go, where the streetcars could only go where the rails went. So this guy just made this up and has become an enduring urban legend that uh, General Motors had a conspiracy to destroy the streetcar industry, when in fact, the industry was destroyed by the Fagel brothers in 1927, 10 years before the General Motors even bought an interest in any streetcar companies. So it's, it's a legend that I hope will die, but it's probably not going to. So, so many people have debunked it, and yet it keeps it going on and on and on and on. With respect to uh, passenger rail today, um, I remit, recall seeing a story about Amtrak and how Amtrak uh, could not be audited because Amtrak's books were such a mess. First of all, is Amtrak a private or a government-owned uh, a subsidiary of the U.S. government? Well, that's an excellent question. And if you ask Amtrak, they would say they're private. Uh, and if you take Amtrak to court as a private company, they'll say, no, we're, we're public. Um, and in fact, uh, that's happened because when Amtrak was created, uh, the railroads were required to pay Amtrak money and to, to operate the trains for two years. In order to join Amtrak, you had to pay the, your, the, co the amount of money that you were losing operating trains for two years. And you were allowed to take a tax deduction for that. But if you couldn't take a tax deduction because you didn't earn enough money to take a tax deduction, you were paid in Amtrak stock. So Burlington Northern and Penn Central uh, own most of the stock in Amtrak because they weren't making enough money to get a tax deduction. So they've then gone to court and said, okay, we own all this stock in Amtrak. We want a return on our investment. We want some, con some control and what Amtrak is doing. Uh, we want some money. If, if, we, if Amtrak wants to buy the stock from us, we want to get some money back for it. And the courts have said, nope, it's not a company. It's a, it's a public agency and you have no authority over it just because you own this phony baloney stock. Uh, so it just depends on what's convenient for Amtrak to say. The reality is Amtrak could not exist without a, at least a billion and a half dollars annual subsidies. 
Amtrak claims that its trains from Boston to Washington make money. The reality is they cover the operating costs, but they don't cover the maintenance costs. And they, that route has a $52 billion maintenance backlog. Uh, and they have no idea where the money is going to come from to fix that. They're hoping that the federal government will bail them out. Uh, Amtrak, all other Amtrak trains lose money. On average, uh, Amtrak loses about almost 30 cents a passenger mile. Uh, it only costs 13 and a half cents a passenger mile to fly. That's what the airlines collect in airfares. So Amtrak loses more money per passenger mile than it would cost to fly people. You mentioned the the decline of streetcars, and uh, but there is still this push in within some cities in America to build what's called light rail. I remember covering this as a as a reporter years ago, uh, at least in in Louisville, Kentucky. And I remember the the head of the uh, transportation authority, the transit authority in Louisville, saying. Uh, making his case for light rail and saying, well, you know, buses don't thrill people's souls. And I thought that's a really weird way of thinking about, a, you know, a, a massively expensive uh, uh, system of transit like light rail. So why are cities still uh, pushing for this? Is there some advantage that we can point to that they have over over buses or other kinds of transit? Absolutely, there is an advantage, and that's that the federal government funds light rail capital improvements uh, with a competitive grant. I call it the bucket of money fund. Uh, if, if you build a cheap light rail line, you'll get a little bit of the money. If you build an expensive light rail line, you'll get a, a bigger chunk of the money. So the more expensive, more money you spend, the more money you get. So that's encouraged cities to build the most expensive transit systems they can. It all began back in 1973 when uh, the governor of Massachusetts, Francis Sargent at the time, didn't want to build some interstate freeways that had been planned in the city of Boston. And so, but he didn't want to give up the money. He still wanted the federal dollars. He just didn't want to spend them on freeways. So he convinced Congress to allow cities to cancel interstate freeways and spend the federal share of the money on transit capital improvements. And in cities that didn't have rail transit, that meant buying buses. But the amount of money, amount of buses you could buy for the cost of an interstate freeway was a lot. And the transit agencies didn't have enough money to operate those buses. So uh, the mayor of Portland, Oregon, Neil Goldschmidt at the time, conceived of the idea of building a light rail line not because it was efficient, but because it was expensive and it would use up all of those federal dollars without imposing a high operating cost on the transit agency. And other cities across the country thought that was a great idea. So other cities that had canceled federal freeways, including Sacramento, San Jose, and Buffalo, uh, all built light rail lines too. Uh, did nothing for transit ridership. And in fact, in many cases, it reduced transit ridership because cost overruns forced them to cut back on bus service. Uh, but then in 1991, Congress just created this multi-billion dollar annual fund, uh, the Bucket of Money Fund, to uh, uh, build light rail and other transit infrastructure elsewhere. So Cities are competing to waste the most dollars so they can get as many federal dollars as they can. And that's the story behind light rail. So when they say that uh, buses don't thrill people's souls, 
uh, as a as a model of transit, how well do buses fare relative to rail? What really counts for people is frequency. If you run a bus once an hour and you replace it with a train that goes eight times an hour, well, you're going to get a lot more riders. But that isn't because people prefer steel wheels over rubber tires. It's because you're running it, running it more frequently. So all you have to do is run the bus eight times an hour, and you'll get just as many new riders as if you run the train eight times an hour. When I went to uh, Hong Kong uh, a few years ago, uh, I was incredibly impressed with their uh, commuter system that they have. The train, uh, obviously, the stations were immaculate. The train platforms were were color coded. Uh, the uh, the signage was was brilliant. Um, the trains actually had spots marked on the platform to tell you essentially where to stand because that's where the doors were going to open, and they did without fail every time I visited uh, a, a train station. Why does no American city have trains like that? Well, first of all, Hong Kong is like taking Manhattan densities, doubling them, and spreading them over the entire urban area. Uh, it's an extremely dense area, not because they've run out of land, but because the government won't let, won't let you build on two-thirds of the land in, in the province. So uh, government restrictions have led to this extremely high-density housing, extremely high-density job centers and rail transit works in that kind of a situation. Uh, second, uh, the San Francisco BART system does have trains that stop at specific marks, and you know before the train arrives in the station where the doors are gonna open. The Washington Metro system also had trains that stopped at specific marks, and the doors would always open at exactly the same spot, but they didn't mark it on the, the pavement like they did in San Francisco, so nobody really knew where it was going to be because they didn't, unless they, rode that train every day because they didn't see those marks that weren't there. Uh, but when uh, they failed to maintain the computer systems in, in Washington, D.C. that were running the trains, uh, they had a crash that killed nine people. So now they have human drivers stop the trains and they don't always stop in the same mark. Uh, and so even if they had marks on the ground, uh, they wouldn't apply anymore. So it's possible to do that in the United States, not that it re would really generate a lot of new ridership. Uh, the problem is politicians like to fund new construction, but they don't like to fund maintenance. And so we have a $100 billion maintenance backlog of our rail transit systems in this country. Uh, and that's on top of the $53 billion maintenance backlog on Washington's, or on Amtrak's Boston to Washington corridor. It seems clear, at least, that uh, Americans, whether or not they prefer cars to transit or if they live in a densely populated uh, urban area where transit is a much more likely uh, and a better alternative than, than even, in many cases, owning a car just to, because parking, parking it is co sometimes complicated and expensive. But what you know, it seems like they're getting a pretty distorted view based upon all the subsidies that the federal government lays out for transit. What would, what would that look like if all that just went away? Private operation of transit seems to cost about half as much as government operation. Private operation of intercity rail probably also would cost about half as much as government operation. The thing is, transit costs four times as much as driving, and Amtrak costs four times as much as, as flying when you count all the subsidies together. So even if you cut the costs in half, you probably would not be able to justify 
rail transit in most cities. New York, yes. Uh, New York right now, uh, the subways generate about 60% of their costs. So if you cut the cost in half, uh, you'd not only be able to cover all the costs, you might ha have some money left over that you could use to pay for maintenance and things like that. Washington, D.C., more questionable. Chicago, almost certainly not. Boston, no. San Francisco, probably not. Um, so uh, what you would see if we ended all the subsidies to transit is you'd see private transit spring up where uh, where there was enough density to justify it, was enough job and population density to justify it. Uh, if you ended all the subsidies to Amtrak, you might see some private uh, passenger trains in really incredibly scenic parts of the country, such as uh, Oakland to, to Denver, which is a very scenic route, the Amtrak's most scenic route, possibly Oakland to Los Angeles, possibly New York to Florida. Uh, you might see some private passenger trains. They would cost a lot more than Amtrak to ride, uh, but you would have to, the private operators would have to uh, pay, you know, charge that amount to be able to justify the extra cost of doing it. So I think we would still see some scattered train services here and there, uh, mostly for tourists. Uh, there's a private company now that wants to operate a tourist line from Miami to Orlando, which will attract cruise ship passengers. They might get enough passengers to, to justify that. Uh, but you're not going to see trains from New York to Chicago or Chicago to Seattle, and you probably aren't even going to see trains from New York to Washington or New York to Boston because uh, the high cost of infrastructure just uh, cannot be supported by passengers alone on those kinds of routes. Randall O'Toole is author of the new Cato Institute book, Romance of the Rails. You can subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>